earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Today we're up to session 21 in our series, Oh, That First Means That. And in these sessions, we're taking a closer look at a number of popular Bible passages we've believed meant one thing, but are fast discovering they actually mean something very different, aren't we? Well, today's session 21 is called, What a Difference a Day Makes. The podcast of these sessions can be found at faithtalk1360.com. Just search for local program podcasts. And friends, it's important I reinforce a statement I've been making. The Bible really does have a story to tell us. In fact, it's crying out, screaming out to tell us its story. But sadly, we preachers, teachers, and pastors, along with average Christians, tend to make, even force, or manipulate the Bible to tell our story. Whether knowingly or unknowingly, I'll still say, shame on us. And please allow me to drive home another point I've been making. The author and inspirer of our Judeo-Christian scriptures, our Bible, if you will, is the Holy Spirit, per Second Peter 1, 20 and 21. So, friends, isn't God's word worthy of greater respect? Doesn't the Holy Spirit deserve our respect as we read it, rather than just cavalierly spouting off what we think a verse means? Well, you might have guessed what today's text will be based on my title, so I won't keep you in suspense any longer. A well-known portion of scripture that I contend we've twisted or warped is found in 2 Peter 3, 8-10, which includes our key verse under scrutiny, with the immediate context being at a minimum chapter 3, verses 3-15 through 15, that we'll bring to the table later. Meanwhile, 2 Peter 3, 8 says... But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. Now, before you conceptualize what you presume this verse means, remember today's session title, What a Difference a Day Makes, because underlying this text of 2 Peter 3.8 and its interpretation is a common bunny trail back to Genesis chapter 1. Let's be honest, friends. How many of us read 2 Peter 3.8 and automatically find our minds jogging back to Genesis chapter 1 and then automatically draw a conclusion we think is there, leaving us with the possibility that maybe the days of Genesis 1 are really years or even thousands of years? After all, friends, isn't that what evolutionary biologists claim? And now even segments of the body of Christ have embraced this view. 
We we so easily get sidetracked because the word creation pops up in verse 4, and that sends our minds spinning out of control and landing on planet Earth back at the creation of the world in Genesis 1. Well, I believe now is the right time to read the immediate context, being 2 Peter 3, 3-15. Because, friends, I want you to notice carefully how the context informs our perception of the subject at hand, the subject according to Peter, and not the subject we've imagined it to be. Here's verses 3 through 15. Listen up. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue just as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, let's pause here for a moment, because I propose this is biblical language for a concept that has emerged in evolutionary biology, known now as uniformitarianism a term coined in the early 1800s for a theory to explain the former changes of the Earth's surface by reference to causes now in operation. Peter continues in verse 5, For when they, the mockers, maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at the time was destroyed by being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly people. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be as worthless, or not be found. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be? in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found spotless and blameless by him, at peace, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Now, friends, the first thing I want us to notice or observe is the frequency of key phrases in this brief portion, which hint at what the subject is for Peter. Basically, for Peter, the subject is threefold, starting out with phrases like, in the last days, his coming. Verse 7 adds, the day of judgment. Verse 12 adds, the coming of the day of God indicating that he has a specific future event in mind, and that he's well aware how this future event will impact both believers and non-believers. You see, friends, Peter is not only an apostle and a missionary evangelist, he's a pastor-teacher as well, with a shepherd's heart. Remember John chapter 21? Go back and read it again and see just how Jesus recommissions Peter. 
In his dual role, Peter has both a love for the lost and a love for the Christ followers who've been scattered abroad throughout the empire, who still need discipling. Secondly, Peter calls attention to mockers or scoffers who are belittling the word of God and questioning God's promises like they're never going to happen. We see this in verse 4 with the mocker's question, Where is the promise of his coming? And this question evidently bleeds over into questioning other aspects of God's word, such as the future judgment and doubting that God is the creator of the universe. And it's here in verse 4, friends, that the word creation pops up. But sadly, we're more influenced by our preconceived ideas than by the actual revelation of what is being said here by Peter. So we cavalierly take verse 8 and retroject it back into verses 5 through 7 and incorrectly conclude that the notion of one day in God's eyes being like a thousand years and vice versa must refer to the original creation week in Genesis 1. Friends, in chapter 3, Peter affirms the long history of the inspiration and revelation of God's word that has been spoken through the prophets in times past, as verse 2 points out, and that this long history has continued through the words and commandments of the Lord and Savior, Jesus the Messiah, as well as the apostles who became writers of what we now call the New Testament. And, as Peter rehearses biblical history, he happens to quote from Psalm 90. How many of us realize that our primary verse under scrutiny, verse 8, is actually an inspired rewording of Psalm 90, verse 4? And, my friends, it's imperative that we examine closely the context of Psalm 90 as it aids us in properly interpreting Second Peter chapter 3. We must cultivate the mindset of the Bereans whom Paul commended because they searched the scriptures to see if the things Paul proposed were in fact true. Friends, we can't for one moment take off our detective's cap and we can't for one moment forget to carry our pocket magnifying glass with us every time we read God's word because... Thirdly, Peter in chapter 3 is also alerting us to God's incredible patience. In verse 9, he says, The Lord is not slow about his promise. And friends, I propose that God's patience here is a dual reference to his patience in salvation of the lost and his patience in judgment. Because, as verse 9 concludes, The Lord is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And friends, patience requires the element of time. And this is where we all get messed up, trying to define God's timing, both in creation and in Jesus' second coming. So let's just do a quick flyover of Peter's second letter to help us navigate through the things he's concerned about with his flock. Peter's writing to a dispersed body of Christ followers, likely a bit fearful of the future, plus experiencing two accompanying problems. They have some doubts about Messiah's second coming, and they're plagued by immorality. 
Friends, Peter is convinced that God's divine power provides everything these believers need for life and godliness per chapter 1. Peter also instructs his flock that since God and Jesus are righteous, all that's not righteous will ultimately be destroyed. In other words, all that oppose the pure goodness of God and Jesus has an expiration date. Evil and wickedness are destined to come to an end. Now, friends, while Peter balances bad news with good news, the good news actually includes the fact that one day there will be no more evil. Yay! One day there will be only righteousness. One day there will only be love. And what exists presently in this fallen world will finally come to a screeching halt. Peter is certain of a coming new creation, a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. 3.13. This present fallen creation will be destroyed, consumed by fire. Peter is also very certain that this present fallen creation is so tainted and so stained that God will cleanse it with fire and intense heat. Nothing will remain. From Peter's perspective, all that is will be dissolved. Friends, Peter's concern is that these scattered believers are also being tempted by mockers or scoffers of his day who are introducing doubt with their question posed in verse 4 that we read earlier. Now, friends, if we're totally honest, will believers in the 21st century would admit we've entertained this idea, haven't we? How many generations have sought to predict just when Jesus is coming back? And we're wrong. After all, we're now some 2,000 years from those first century believers. But we're infatuated with time, aren't we? When are you coming back, Jesus? When will all this be finally over? Can't we see that our phony predictions are just causing the masses to think that all this talk about Jesus' second coming is a fairy tale? And some in the body of Christ are beginning to believe this. Friends, our infatuation with time must be tempered by the truth of the scriptures, right? And unfortunately, these days, I have to now add the phrase, properly interpreted. Well, Psalm 90 has been waiting in the wings, so let's call on it, since Peter borrows from it. Let's let Psalm 90 supply us with a backstory we've likely left out of the mix. That's supposed to help us. Now, due to time constraints, I can't read all of Psalm 90, but I'll highlight several key and relevant statements. So please read Psalm 90 on your own. And since our verse under scrutiny is an adaptation of verse 4, let me first summarize verses 1 through 3. This is a psalm of Moses and is shaped around prayer language that makes some declarative statements about God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Immediately, Moses acknowledges that although human lifespan is temporary and short-lived, God's lifespan goes on. In fact, in every generation, particularly for the Hebrews, God is there with them. Verse 2 declares, You, Lord, brought forth the whole world, and you are God from everlasting to everlasting. Notice, Moses declares that God is timeless. In other words, endless, everlasting, eternal. Our eternal hope is grounded in an eternal God. And God's covenant faithfulness is also eternal. 
God's eternality, in other words, his timelessness, is reinforced in verse 3 by contrasting his timelessness with time-bound mortal humans. You, Lord, turn by people back to dust, saying, Return to dust, you mortals. Verse 4, the verse Peter enlists to buttress his point, now declares, A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Verse 5 then declares that we humans are subject to death, like a new grass in the morning. And here, friends, verse 5 triggers a succession of declarative statements that makes it clear that the Hebrews knew how to distinguish between days, weeks, and years. Between verses 5 and 16, morning is mentioned three times, evening mentioned once. Between these verses, days is mentioned five times, and years three times. Even human life lifespan is seen in verse 10, which says, Our days may come to 70 years, or 80 if our strength endures. Then this idea is followed up with another well-known verse, verse 12, that says, Teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Also, between verses 5 and 16, the cause of our limited human lifespan and eventual death is declared in verse 8. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. So, friends, here in Psalm 90, humankind's humble demise is contrasted with God's eternal, timeless existence. And this contrast, friends, exists in other psalms as well, like Psalm 102, 24 through 27, which include these declarative statements. Do not take me away, my God, in the midst of my days. Your years go on through all generations. In the beginning you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. You see, friends, these passages continually highlight the difference between God's unending existence and our short-lived human and mortal existence in time. And so, in Second Peter chapter 3, and Peter's call to his dispersed flock to patience, just affirms that God does not account for time in the same way that humans do. Humans are time-bound, whereas God is not. And this is a perfect segue to Genesis 1 and the creation account, particularly in light of God creating days marked by the common use and repetition of the words evening and morning in verses 3 through 31, and the use of the terms day and night, as well as days and years in verses 14 through 19. It's also interesting that in verses 16 through 18, we find the statement that God created the greater light, the lesser light, and the stars to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And later in Genesis 8, God tells Noah that as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Friends, these observations help to strip away our preconceived ideas, often influenced by the relentless efforts of mainstream minds, bent on serving up an alternative, anti-supernatural, biased explanation for the creation account in the Bible. 
Now, friends, I propose that we can't fully understand and properly interpret the creation account in Genesis 1 unless we familiarize ourselves with Exodus 16 and 20, plus portions of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. For it's these relevant passages that we get a proper glimpse of the Hebrews' understanding of the significance of days, weeks, months, and years in their annual lives as the chosen people of God. So let's do another flyover and survey some key and relevant texts beginning with Exodus 16. And remember, Moses wrote these books. Exodus 16 is the account of the manna God supplies. Between verses 4 and 36, we find each day, that day, on the sixth day, evening and morning, twilight, a holy Sabbath, today, and the operative phrase, six days you are to gather it, the manna, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any, verse 26. Plus another key operative phrase in verse 29, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. On the seventh day, no one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. Exodus 20 is the chapter on the giving of the Ten Commandments. You know it well, right? Well, listen to how God expands on the Sabbath he designated in Exodus 16. In 20, verse 8, we read, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Notice, friends, God established a work week for his chosen people. The verses continue, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither your your, your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, not your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. Here it comes, verse 11, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Friends, this comparison by God himself of Israel's work week and his creation week is repeated over and over again in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. And in these various comparisons, we see not only days and weeks differentiated, but days, weeks, and years, even months differentiated in Deuteronomy 16. Well, my friends, I'm counting on you to become Bereans, searching the scriptures to see if what Pastor Tom proposes is in fact true. So I'm going to give you the accounts in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy so you can turn today's session into a personal Bible study and develop a good working knowledge of the subject. If need be, re-listen to this podcast and take some good notes. Here they are, Exodus chapter 16 and 20, 23, 12, 31, 15, 34, 21, 35, 2, Leviticus 23, 3, Deuteronomy 5, 12 through 14, and 16, 5 through 8. Friends, scripture properly interpreted is the best corrective for our perceptions of what we sometimes think a verse means. Well, let's not leave 2 Peter 3, 8 hanging, okay? Let's make some fitting conclusions and applications to Peter's words for today. 
First, let's re-emphasize our God is timeless. He's eternal. He's not limited as we humans are by the perception of the passing of time. Let's remember God's thoughts are not our thoughts, and his ways are not our ways. The promising God will keep his promises. Second, let's remind ourselves God is not bound by counting days from a human perspective. Time does not hold God. He doesn't wait or rush like we do. Have you learned that yet? What sometimes looks like poor timing to us, as limited humans, has a plan and a purpose, sometimes known only to God. Third, just as Peter dismantles the arguments of false teachers in the first century, let's be able students of God's word, so we can defend it against the mockers and scoffers of our day. Fourth, let's remember that Peter uses a literary device known as a simile, using as or like. Peter never said that one day with God equals a thousand years. Notice we quote the first half of Peter, but leave out the second half. A thousand years is like a day. Think of how ludicrous this would be if we applied the second half like we so cavalierly do the first half. And fifth, let's be patient with God and with others. After all, he's patient with us. Let's renew our burden for souls, not wishing that any would perish, but come to repentance. And be thankful God doesn't work on a timetable like we do. And let's not lose heart like the persecuted believers in Peter's day. Let's live holy and godly lives as we look forward to seeing Jesus face to face. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we're nearing the end of today's program, which will close with an email where you may write me. One listener recently wrote in on session 19 titled, So What Really Happens When Two or Three Gather? With good message on where two or three are gathered, context is everything. Well, thanks for your words of affirmation. And remember, friends, the podcasts of all these sessions are posted at faithtalk1360.com. Just search the menu for local program podcasts. And please keep in mind, friends, that A Word from the Word is a listener-supported program. So please consider financially helping to keep A Word from the Word on the air with your kind support. Just email me for the details. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. And remember... Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com.